Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I am your host, John Robb, joined here by my wonderful co-host, Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, uh, trying to stay cool. Exactly, because it is a freaking screaming hot thing outside wherever we are. I don't know where we are around the United States or around the world, but it seems that the sun has finally landed on Earth. But... We are here uh, today. We are going to be interviewing a fantastic author, one that we've never had on the show before. Uh, best-selling author Ruth Ware was going to join us. She is going to be talking about her latest book, One by One, which is out in the United States September 8th. I want to remind you that all of our shows are brought to you by Suspense Magazine, so please visit suspensemagazine.com for more information. And, of course, our latest anthology, which is called Nothing Good Happens After Midnight with Jeffrey Deaver, among many other fabulous authors. Uh, you're going to check that out. That's out in November, so check that one out. But without any further ado, let's bring on our guest. So, Ruth, thanks so much for coming on with us today. How are you doing? Oh, thank you for having me. No, I'm really good. I think we've got rid of all of our hot weather that we had last week, and I, I feel like we've just kind of pushed it all across to you guys, so I apologize for that. You did. That's okay. That's all right. Um, you could have pushed us some other good things our way, but you know, I guess we'll take a week and take at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so let's kind of get into your book here. So One by One is your latest thriller. It's out September 8th. You've got a lot of things going on here. So why don't you give us a little bit about what you have uh, going on in the book? Well, it's, um, it's a locked room mystery, uh, which I, uh, regular readers will know I do enjoy a good locked room mystery. Um, and it's set in a, a luxurious ski chalet in the French Alps. Um, where uh, a company called Snoop has gathered for this kind of make-or-break corporate retreat where they're trying to thresh out the whether or not to accept this buyout offer that they've been given. So Snoop are a tech company. They're an up-and-coming app um, for a, an app that allows you to kind of snoop on what other people are listening to. So the idea is you can listen to what celebrities are listening to in real time or your friends or, you know, whoever really. Um, and they've been offered this kind of billion-dollar buyout offer, and the company is completely split, and half the company wants to accept the money and run, and the other half wants to retain control of the company and you know, potentially go public further down the line. And right in the middle of this is one of my two narrators, Liz, um, who used to be a, a secretary at the company way back when it was starting out. And as part of her kind of package, she was given a tiny 2% shareholding. And because of a fluke of the way the, the other votes have panned out, she has ended up with the casting vote in this situation. So her little 2% share has suddenly become the most important one in the company. And because of this, she's under huge pressure from the two founders um, who are on opposite sides of the debate, and each of them want her to vote with them. So she's stuck in this kind of nightmare scenario. Um, and on the first day of this corporate retreat, they decide to have a bit of R&R &R and kind of, you know, make the most of their settings. They all go out to, to do skiing. Conditions are getting worse and worse, and one of the two founders disappears on this really kind of treacherous black run, which they only realize when they get back to the chalet. And just as they're about to set out and look for her, an avalanche sets in, at which point everybody is trapped in this uh, in this luxurious but increasingly kind of claustrophobic chalet. And um, what was initially put down to be an accident, uh, other people start to go missing and die, at which point they realize they're probably trapped with a killer in their midst. I love how I got um, vibes of 
Agatha Christie from this. And clearly, Agatha Christie's an inspiration for you. For you. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that. And also, I'm curious, what was the very first thing that popped into your head that created the story? Was it thinking about being isolated after an avalanche? Was it a particular character? So Christie's definitely an influence. Um, I love her books. And she was one of the first crime writers that I ever read. So I think she kind of imprinted on me at a really early age the image of what a crime novel should be in a weird kind of way. You know, the idea that it ought to be um, who done it, and that the kind of the the way the plot should unfold, and the fact that the pieces should sort of click into place at the end. All of that is what I strive to do with my books. Although I think my characters are considerably worse behaved than her, I think she probably strongly disapprove of all of my kind of rather neurotic uh, female narrators. Um, but there's definitely. And then there were none vibes about one by one. It's not a rewrite in any sense. The plot is not remotely the same. Um, But I do think there's something particularly kind of pure about a novel where you as a writer and a reader only have the suspects that you give yourself at the beginning of the kind of the enterprise. And it makes it it makes it much more difficult as a writer in some ways because you have much less to hide behind. The cast of suspects is much smaller. And so it really comes down to how well you've plotted out that initial murder and whether people have spotted the kind of the slate of hand that you're doing behind the scenes. Um, And the thing about crime readers is they are hugely sophisticated. They tend to read a hell of a lot of crime. And so it's very difficult to pull the wool over their eyes. But, you know, I try afresh (laughs) with each book. (laughs) But as for where that sort of initial seed came from, um, I don't really, I mean, part of it was um, I love skiing and I'd written the book, my first book, um, In a Dark, Dark Wood, the main character was a runner. And I got a lot of people writing to me saying, I can tell you're a runner because you write so well about running. And the truth is I'm, I'm not a runner. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do sport. I don't even run for the bus if I can possibly help it. And it got me to thinking about, you know, the, what sports do I actually enjoy? Would it be more fun to write about something that I did know about and didn't have to research? And really skiing is the only the only sport that I can put a hand on heart and say I genuinely do enjoy this I enjoy you know doing it and and I know something about it so it was something that I didn't have to research too hard um but I think probably the the sort of the, the heart of the plot comes from the fact that I'd done novels about friendship about romantic love about family um and all those kinds of relationships and the fact that they can you know they can be wonderful or they can be toxic or they can be kind of the source of murder and i realized that the one relationship that i hadn't really explored that's central to many of our lives is our relationship with our colleagues and the fact is you know we spend more time with these people than with our families in many cases you know we're shut up with people eight hours a day, which is probably more time that we spend with our best friend. And they can have a completely sort of central effect on our lives. You know, they can make our lives absolute hell or they can be wonderful, funny, supportive, excellent presences. Um, And I wanted to do something exploring both sides of that. And that's definitely something that you see play out in one by one. There's some really good 
kind of colleague and employer relationships. Erin, who's one of the two narrators, um, she's the chalet girl at the, at the ski chalet. And she has a really brilliant relationship with her colleague, Danny, who's the chef. And they're mutually supportive and they, you know, they have jokes and they have fun and they back each other up. But Snoop is a company that has grown up in a very kind of fast organic way in the way that many of these startups have and I was really interested in exploring the idea that you can have a brilliant idea and you can have the resources and the contacts to exploit it really effectively but that doesn't necessarily make you a great employer and it doesn't give you the tools to deal with all of those myriad HR problems that start to crop up when you've got a company of more than two or three mates and this is definitely what's happened at Snoop you know the founders are very well connected they're very privileged they had a really good idea which they've run with but they are not good people managers and they've allowed some really unhealthy practices and really toxic relationships to build up at their company and of course once those people are locked up in a ski chalet with nowhere else to go those tensions come to a boiling point now you know this is so this is your sixth full thriller book that's that you've written um and so when you kind of look back when you had written In a Dark, Dark Wood and then kind of going through now one by one, is there challenges that you like to try to make for yourself? Have you, have you kind of said to yourself, you know what, I've now found my voice and I kind of got myself going? Or is that something that you still kind of struggle with and challenge with that you're still trying to, you know, kind of get together? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think the biggest challenge – as a writer is probably because I write standalones rather than series it's a constant challenge not to repeat myself and writing a standalone novel you know you kind of do have to reinvent the wheel each time you have to have a new narrator you have to have a new setting you have to have a new voice you have to have you know new things that you're talking about and I'm sure series writers have this as well in different ways you know obviously not got to put their characters through the same hoops each time but it, it feels to me like more of a problem for, for writers who write a new completely new setting each time that you have to come up with all of these new ingredients and you want to talk about stuff that you're interested in but not the same things that you were interested in last time and the, the truth is of course you know as a writer like all other writers I have certain subjects that I'm preoccupied with certain you know probably neuroses I would say writing's a bit like free therapy certain things that I keep coming back to but you don't want to bore your readers and you certainly don't want to bore yourself as a writer so I try to do something a bit different with each novel um, sometimes that's just as basic as you know writing it in a different tense or in a different voice or in the case of one by one it's the first time I've had two narrators which was really fun because it enabled me to kind of go back and forth and show the same events unfolding from two different perspectives um, but yeah I would say that that's that's my biggest challenge is coming at topics and not saying the same thing each time I don't feel like I mean you want to feel like you're sort of developing as a writer each time but I don't feel like there's sort of some great secret that I'm groping towards that I haven't kind of got True. to yet maybe there is maybe I just haven't found it <laughs> <laughs> well I, I'm curious being a writer myself you spend so much time in the heads of the characters that you're creating and you mentioned that earlier I'm curious have you ever been 
shocked or surprised by a character you've created that they did something you weren't expecting? Um, yeah, I mean, my characters quite often... I te- I don't tend to plot exhaustively. I always know at the beginning of a novel, I know quite a lot about my characters because I think about them a lot before I start writing. So I've generally spent several weeks and months in the heads of these people kind of listening to them talk to me and trying to figure out what they're trying to say. Um, but I don't plot out every single aspect of the plot of my books. I know who did it and I know why and I usually know kind of the starting point. Um, but everything that happens in between is up for grabs. And, and so, yes, definitely, you know, characters do stuff which I'm like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Or it very rarely kind of completely shocks me. But they often do go off in directions that I wasn't quite intending or it reveal things about themselves that I didn't know before I started out. Um, but once or twice, characters have done stuff which I have been, have kind of really put, my nose out of joint and there was one book and I won't say which one it is because it it would be a spoiler if people haven't read it um but a character at the end who in my head was supposed to die just refused to die and we got to the point in the book and she was just like no (laughs) I'm not gonna do it and it it made for a much better ending, but it, it meant I had to go back and do a significant amount of rewriting and replotting to make it work because this ending that I've been leading up to was now not going to happen. And that was purely down to the character. She was just a rock-hard survivor and would not allow herself to roll over and die in the manner that I'd intended. <laughs> now, do you go to a lot of conferences? Um, did, did you do some book I conferences? don't go to... I don't go to a huge amount. Um, partly we don't really, in the UK, we don't have the conference scene in quite the same way as you guys do in America. Like you guys so have like Crime Fest lit- and Harrogate. I know those are two big ones. Yeah, we have literary festivals, which is sort of a bit different in the sense that you turn up to do an event and there's like a certain amount of socializing in the bar, but it's not quite the yeah. same sort of setup as a conference. Um, and I never went to conferences before I started writing. I often feel like... Um, people who want to be writers sort of feel like it's kind of they've got to do due diligence in a weird kind of way like it's sort of part of their professional development and I think that's wonderful if you're getting something out of it and you know if it allows you to think about your craft in a new way but I don't think there's anything wrong with just shutting yourself up in your you know in your bedroom and typing a manuscript out on your computer which is what I did I didn't you know I didn't go around kind of courting literary agents and stuff before before I did it. Um, but I have been well, the reason, to a few... Well, the reason, why I kinda, um, the reason why I kind of asked that, too, is well, I, I'm always fascinated because you do very well in the United States and you do very well in the U.K., and I'm always fascinated to know, is there a, do you see a differences in what the U.S. readers, kind of when you get emails and feedback, what they're kind of important, and then the U.K., do you sense that there's a difference by country and reader uh, in different kinds of aspects of your books that you get emails about? Huh, oh, that is a really good question. Um, the main difference, which you may not be surprised to hear, is that American readers complain about swearing. I've never had an email from what? a UK reader talking about the language in my books, and I get many, many comments and emails from American readers complaining about the fact that my characters swear, um, which is, you know, that's 
I understand why people would find it offensive. I don't put the language in because I think it's big or funny, but just because, you know, people talk that way. And in my own kind of small way, I am trying to reflect the world as I've experienced it. Um, but yeah, it bothers people in America. It does not bother people in the UK. So that is the, that's the kind of, that's the, the, the smallest difference in a way, but also the biggest because it has the biggest effect on me day to day. Um, I think, um, I think I've seen as more literary in America. I think American readers, I'm packaged in a different way over there in the UK. I'm very kind of straight psychological thriller. Um, and I think, I think American readers in a way read my books as much for my settings and the kind of the view on the UK that I give. Um, which obviously for British readers is not in any way interesting or remarkable. <laughs> you know, they might like my setting, but it's it's not because they've never been to Cornwall. It's because you know it's just a nice house or whatever. Um, so I think you know it's kind of a similar thing to the way I read Scandinavian crime fiction. You know, I read it because I love all the pine forests and the jumpers and the yeah. you know the inspectors and stuff. I think if it's a culture that you're less familiar with, you get uh, something extra out of the book whereas if it's a culture you know a lot about that aspect is so familiar to you that you don't sort of notice it in a weird kind of way gotcha cool I always complain about John swearing, so it's all good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I promise not to swear now. Oh, I, I can oh, keep oh, it under wraps. Oh, I'm not you know what you got to do. We're okay on this show. Uh, you know, you swear all you want. <laughs> um, and I was, and I was realizing, I'll keep myself under control. <laughs> I was realizing also that um, if someone usually says they have voices in their head talking to them, we would be concerned, but talking to you it's like oh of course yeah that's where they come from it's totally natural (laughs) (laughs) i you know i feel i need to make clear i do understand they're not real people i think that's when i would start to get concerned if if they were you know (laughs) but no i think it's perfectly normal and i think you know i have what many writers have which is um you know when you if you're writing a, a scene where your characters are having an argument and then you, you know, you shut down your computer and go down, you sort of stomp around the house feeling vaguely annoyed with your family because you're still in that kind of mindset and you're like trying to pick a fight with someone because you're still kind of <laughs> cross with your characters for being so unreasonable. Yeah, my, my wife always, used to always say, what, what, what's the matter or what are you thinking about now? She's like, oh, you're writing in your head, aren't you? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, no, I totally get that. Um, Talking about the difference between U.S. and U.K., most authors that I've seen who live in the U.K. and have books published in the U.S., the book might come out the same day in both countries or they come out earlier in the U.K. And I'm wondering why your new book is coming out earlier here in the U.S. before it Yeah, that's, 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 that's not only backwards. Yeah, that's just yeah, backwards. It, I- it has been the other way around in the past. Sometimes it's come out first in the UK. Sometimes it's, yeah, mostly they try and go together. But for some reason, September wasn't a great month for my UK publishers. Um, and, yeah, they wanted to do it in November and the Americans wanted to do it in September. And, uh, yeah, it, it, I like, think in a way it's easier for me because... 
Well, at the time when it was planned, so the problem yeah. is I can only, obviously, only ever be in one place at one time. So when, it, when we planned all of this last year, the intention was that I was going to do a big US tour in September. And so from that uh, point of view, it was much better for my UK publishers not to go at the same time because obviously if I'm in America doing events, I can't be, be in the UK talking to people. So at that point, it made a lot of sense to go separately and they didn't want to release it over the summer because I basically because I delivered it too late for it to be published in July. Um, so it made sense to go after. Now, of course, you know, uh, <laughs> sadly, I'm not flying about from, from state to state. So actually, it, it could have gone at the same time. But yeah. Cool. Case of That's true. Hey, as long as it gets out there. I, I'm curious, what led you to pick up wanting to write in the first place? Did you always want to do it, or was there something that said, I've got to do this? What, what was your inspiration to start writing? I just always was a storyteller. Before I could write, I was telling my sister tales about our teddy bears and then it was our Barbie dolls and they had these you know amazing Jackie Collins love lives where they were constantly kind of feuding and falling in love and and as soon as I could write I started writing stories um, and then when I was about I think it was about seven or eight my mum went back to college and took a touch typing course um, and so she had a, a manual typewriter. Um, and so I, when she had finished doing her, you know, typing exercises in the evenings, I used to sit there and kind of pick out little stories, kind of one-fingered. And they just got longer and longer. And then, you know, we had – my dad was a, an IT manager, so we had these enormous kind of like 1980s clunky home computers that sort of heated up like a brick. Um, and I would type out on those and kind of – you know, do DOS word processing and stuff. My kids look at me now like more of an alien when I talk about this. I'm honestly not that old. I was, you know, just quite an early adopter of computers. Um, and they, my, these stories just got longer and longer until by the time I was a teenager, I was writing kind of book-length things, although I would hesitate to call them novels. They had a lot of ingredients missing. Um, but I never really thought I could be an author. I always wanted to be um, and in fact, I remember having a conversation with my mum when I was about sort of six or seven. With her. She said, you know, we were doing the whole kind of what do you want to be when you grow up. And I said, well, I think I'd like to be a writer. And she, she said, which is good, good advice, but quite harsh. She said, well, uh, I think that's lovely. But I think you might find quite a lot of other people want to be writers too. And it might be quite difficult to make a living. So uh, maybe you should have a plan B just in case being a writer doesn't work out. You know, that's the very sound advice. She didn't say don't do it. She said just be prepared in case it doesn't happen. That was a very nice thing about it, though. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, I think it was realistic. And actually, even I I resisted giving up the day job for a very long time. I had a book. My books have been optioned by Hollywood, and I had two books in the New York Times bestseller list before I resigned my day job, principally because I probably had that voice of my mum's in the back of my head. But even when I did, I was like, okay, well, if it doesn't work out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retrain and become an accountant because I think there's a lot of authors out there who need oh a good God, accountant. Oh, my God, that's what I'm an accountant. accountant. Don't be an accountant. <laughs> well, there you go. I love numbers. I think I would have made a great accountant, and I love a good spreadsheet. So, 
<laughs> well, there's a lot of those and a lot of numbers, and sometimes it's kind of like words. Your head gets spinning, and then you're like, was that $5 million or was that 500000 I don't even know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I bet all your clients are considerably worried now. <laughs> the problem is, is no? that, unlike writing, when there's an accounting, there's really no editing. That's called an audit, and you don't want to go through one of those. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah. so Ruth is. Um, well, I haven't Ruth, I haven't retrained as an accountant yet, but that's still yeah. on the you know on the possible options list. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, hey! You stay in your lane, and I'll stay out of writing. No, I'm just joking. You do. Okay, that seems fair. <laughs> But I realized I didn't, I didn't answer your original question, which was when did I actually kind of decide to become a writer? And that wasn't until I was in my 30s. Well, it was, about, it was around about my 30th birthday. And so I'd been writing and writing all this time and putting these novels under the bed because I was just basically too chicken to do anything with them. And it was only when I had kids and I'd had my second baby and I suddenly realized I don't have time for anything anymore. I don't even have time to wash my hair, let alone write books. And unless I do something with this, this is going to disappear out of my life because I just don't have time for it. And I thought I have to make it pay because I don't have time for hobbies. And if it's not a hobby, it's got to be a job. So it's got to be one or the other. So I thought, okay, the next book, I'm going to do something with it. And that was the book that I hooked my now agent and became my first published book so it was yeah it was because I, I hear a lot about the you know the pram in the hallway and the enemy of creativity and all, and all I can say is from my point of view it was the exact opposite it was having kids that made me knuckle down and realize what my priorities were Nice. So Ruth, so RuthWare.com would be the best place for people to find out all about uh, you and everything you got going on that's correct. That's my that's my site. Yeah, come and visit me. Yeah, and so do you do a lot of? Um, I'm just looking. So you do have a contact up there and all their books. I mean, the woman in Cabin Ten. That was the one that kind of set you on the path, wasn't it? That was the one that pushed you over the edge. It, that was like your book. Wasn't yeah, it? it it kind of exposed. Yeah, the in a dark dark wood did really well and was optioned for cinema and was on the New York Times bestseller list and all these things that I kind of never expected to achieve. But The Woman in Cabin 10 was my kind of second, difficult second novel. And it was the hardest out of all of my books to write. But I think I just felt like I had to show that that first book was not a flash in the pan. And I threw everything at it. And yeah, it took fly, fire in a way that I had never expected. <laughs> Well, that's where, that's where my, my daughter found you, and you're one of her favorite authors now. She found that book, and she started reading it, and oh, now she's read all of your stuff. Oh, please say hi to her. Yeah, I will. And, so, and I, I texted her before I was on. I said, do you have anything you want me to ask her? And she goes, no, just tell her I love her book so much. So that was <laughs> – <laughs> so there oh, she goes. well, yeah. please tell her I love her as a reader, and I, you know, thank you very Absolutely. much for reading my books. It means a lot to me. <laughs> so, Ruth, hey, we want to thank you so much for coming on and talking about One by One again. Uh, the book comes out September the eighth here in the United States, so people can get it where, um, whenever you know, however that, whatever format they want it, and it'll be available. And we want to thank you so much for coming on. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Can't wait to do it again. So congratulations and good luck. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, guys. It was a real pleasure. Yes. All right, now. Thank you so much. Get some cool air, and we'll talk soon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye, Ruth. Well, Enjoy. thank you so much.
Okay, Take bye-bye. care, guys. Thanks for a really great interview. And seriously, say hi to your daughter for me. She sounds oh, lovely. Don't worry. I will talk. To, I will text her when we get off. <laughs> Take care. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a good evening. You too. Bye. Bye.